Welcome again to Hotbox the Cinema. Uh, I'm Nathan, one of your hosts. I'm Seth, the other host. And welcome. Uh, this is the, what, the audio podcast about motion pictures, motion images. You're home for high theory and mm-hmm. uh, moving image theory and talking about those pictures mm-hmm. that, that move. You know. But also move us. Wow, that's that's I mean that's why we go to the movies. That's why we do this whole thing, is yeah. uh, for that just experience where you just feel touched. Yeah, how are you uh, doing tonight? Pretty good. Sorry, the other day, I just remembered the other day me and my roommate watched uh, Ghosts of Girlfriends Past, that Matthew McConaughey movie, the pre McConaughey aunts rom com. Yeah. Well, the thing is, my roommate just started a. Uh, a McConaughey journey okay of her own because she just just discovered that she liked him as an actor and just hadn't really seen much by him until Mm -hmm. she watched True Detective recently so it's been a steady journey and I've hopped along for some of it which has been fun I actually wanted to watch Ghost to Girlfriend Pass for a long time and finally got to (laughs) what have been the stops on the McConaughey trip Um, Lincoln Lawyer that one hasn't happened yet Ed TV is another one Damn, TBS classic. John Sayles, Lone Star. Oh, Lone Star's pretty good. Um, Kubo and the Two Strings. These are all ones that I haven't seen yet. My God. But we watched uh, Beach Bum. That's a great one. Yeah, um, modern classic. How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days was, you know, it's not much you can do with that, to be honest. <laughs> but It's Ghost- a movie. Yeah, Ghost of Girlfriend's Past, though. Crazy. Michael Douglas yeah. literally plays the Wayne Diamond character from Uncut Gems. But he's like the uh, the ghost. He's an uncle to Matthew McConaughey who has this. He like comes back as a ghost from the afterlife mm-hmm. to like walk him through the the ghost of girlfriend like past, present and future. Real Christmas Carol flip. That classic story structure. But then Michael michael douglas plays wayne diamond and like walks him through <laughs> this whole journey and everything like that and apparently michael douglas's character is the one who taught him to be like such a, sh- a shitty human being and was a role model for that when he was mm-hmm. young but pretty good yeah check it out sometime on uh 
cable probably on hbo go or something yeah especially like, if you're a jennifer garner fan and she just doesn't act anymore oh wow yeah she's she just those capital one commercials those yeah. uh are all pretty good though you know they're probably a top tier commercial i think you know i don't i don't hate it when jennifer garner is trying to sell me a credit card but yeah so i watched that and then i haven't really been playing any games or anything lately i play a little bit on like a puzzle game on a handheld mm-hmm. but that's about it as of late i've been gaming a lot more uh recently than i have in the past uh because i got the remastered burnout paradise for ps4 classic at your suggestion um we had played that game in the past yeah. i played your copy of it well i think you got like a fundamentally different version because we played the yeah. original ps3 version and that one on the last generation of consoles like allowed you to play music from your internal music storage on the console so we would like load it up with a bunch of nightcore <laughs> and play this like crazy <laughs> like blistering fast like racing game <coughs> where you're like always wrecking into everything or like grinding on a rail and yeah. there's like sparks everywhere. Real like chaotic stuff. A little bit like Kane and Lynch too, actually, in terms of the the game camera and how that the, that creates a the sparks, the shards. Mm-hmm. Um but then this this PS4 version, you get to play Spotify over the, the PS4 app so you can play it on your phone and stuff. Yeah, you just turn the music all the way down in the game, you know, the the car radio soundtrack of like Avril Lavigne and yep, uh, girlfriend. That's the, that's the yeah. song everybody remembers from that game. And it's a great Al- song. Although you uh, always have to hear paradise city by guns and roses play in the in game menu over and over again. Uh, and I'm just like, it's like mad. the worst part about the game is the first like minute of starting. <laughs> I just imagine every time I turn it on, like my roommates hearing paradise city, like over and over and over again, it cracks me up, but it's so, it's so fun. And like, I've just been finding it very cathartic, just like playing tunes, driving really mm-hmm. fast. Like sometimes you drive so fucking fast. I like, feel like I'm just like, my mind is just running. Like I'm just in this pure tunnel vision, like slips stream oh, you're in the uh, flows the flow state as they call it <laughs> you know gotta go fast uh yeah. honestly um which i think uh pretty good segue if i do say so myself into mm-hmm. the topic for today which is sonic the hedgehog pretty much um, yeah the movie our friend or our, our good friend as we know him chronic the hemp hog Mm-hmm. because we like to go fast, but we also like to go slow too. And, you know, enjoy the little things. Exactly. But no little thing. This is no, it's, uh, now been, you know, it was delayed for a long time because of those eyes, the Sonic eyes that everybody hated and got mad at. And, um, they thought that Sonic the Hedgehog was going to ruin their childhood because he looked a little odd in the face. Yeah. Like, I can't watch that thing eat a chili dog. <laughs> what am I? But, you know, there's uh, this is people have been saying, you know, this is wow. This is the video game movie that finally did it. Like, it's been doing pretty well at the box office. And yeah. I think it was like well received for the most part. And so everybody's like, oh, this is it. Finally, they got it right this time. They video games and cinema you know chocolate and peanut butter 
just the predator <laughs> meme, just shaking hands, and oh, yeah. Sonic the Hedgehog is the result. Uh, this movie though is like does come with a slight grain of salt. I guess this kind of maybe we're talking about the relationship between video games and movies always being a little bit of a tumultuous one. We've talked quite a while on this podcast about how video games a lot of times like do just constantly just it's a lot of navel gazing at like cinematic form mm-hmm. to bring like legitimacy and maybe bring the credibility of like a capital A art form um, by just kind of yeah. borrowing from the old one or maybe not the old one, but the the most recent dominant one, you know? Yeah, it's like, you know, yeah, uh, right before we recorded this, the day before we recorded this podcast, there was all this f- kerfluffle on Twitter about James Mangold, like possibly directing Indiana Jones 5 instead of Steven Spielberg. And I saw somebody say something like, oh, he should just like do the Uncharted movie instead because that's like the knockoff Indiana Jones and he's like not the real Steven Spielberg. So he should just do that instead. And it is, but it is kind of like, you know, the question is like, okay, so you try to make an Uncharted movie, but that's just basically like, you know, taking so clearly from a sort of cinematic reference point. And so it's like, how do you make a movie that is distinguished from the other movies that the video game was referencing or like ripping off, like the Tomb Raider movie, I think is kind of an example of that maybe, or Mm -hmm. which one the, Oh, I, the, the more recent one. I mean, I feel like the Angelina Jolie ones are a little bit more like fully realized. And I feel like the real, like sleek globe trotting kind of like treasure hunter stuff. Yeah. You got that, uh, Jan DeBont touch the one with uh, what's with with uh, Alicia Vikander the one that it came just, out in like in accordance with the the reboots of the series yeah yeah exactly it felt like sort of a just kind of the AAA PS4 like remaster where it's just kind of just makes it a little blander and flattens it a little bit yeah well i mean it was the real uh like the born and the man versus wild kind of influence on those ones like we're gonna make one that you go on this island and you're surviving in the woods and there's a you know shaky camera and then random people out there that try to kill you and all that i don't know it's a whole thing i've only played the first i haven't played the most recent one but i mean also it's kind of interesting now that we're talking about this because the square enix studio crystal dynamics is the one that develops these new tomb raider games and their new game that's coming out um is the marvel's avengers game Mm -hmm. it's the next the next game up or maybe the maybe there's one game before that but like the next of one of two next games in the marvel's marvel studios like picture cinematic universe line of games that started off with insomniac spider-man and this Avengers game looks like one of the more bland video games that I've ever seen. Yeah. Which is just weird because I'm, well, I mean, the formula is just like multi million dollar, like multiplayer RPG, like open world, just kind of all the general, like bloated tick boxes in terms of like modern AAA development. And then grafting onto that formula, the, um, the Avengers kind of skin and storytelling and everything. The other game in that, and that grouping being uh, the Sony developed VR Iron Man game. <laughs> Forgot about that. Where you're like flying through the air and everything. But that one's also a little bit weird though, because Sony, 
I think part of the funding for this game came from the Air Force because Sony also developed a Air Force VR game for the government and put it on mm-hmm. uh, their their VR platform. And it's the same first person kind of falling from the sky mm-hmm. VR controls. So I think that maybe were part of the development for that came from. But anyway, so talking about, I guess, that general tie between or maybe the incestuous nature or maybe or medically sealed relationship between yeah. video games and movies. Yeah, I mean, it was for a long time, you know, that like video games were totally subservient to movie properties. And so many films had the like shovelware tie in game adaptations. Mm -hmm. The Goonies 1 and 2, E.T. Friday the 13th. Yeah. Um, Mm. Which, I mean, was a pretty like dominant trend in the industry, I feel like, until like the end of the 2000s. Uh, I feel like there was kind of a key moment where there was like the Dark Knight game in development, Pandemic Studios, and that game just like went way over budget and they were constantly trying to retool it and it was not working and they just ended up... like that and the Dirty Harry game as well. Yeah, they just like ended up scrapping that Dark Knight game and then it was just sort of, I think, opened it up because... Christopher Nolan, you know, like supposedly like made superhero movies like a serious thing with the Dark Knight that people were going to take seriously. And now it was like, oh, we don't actually need like video games to promote these. They can exist independently of each other. So you have the acclaimed, you know, Arkham series of Batman games existing independently of the movies. Mm -hmm. And so now it's at this point where like there's with something like Marvel, they're starting to converge again. And like with a. The Arkham games, that's also worth pointing out, not just, I mean, in relation to like them making licensed games serious and them not needing movies anymore, but I mean, licensed games in general for a long time had a pretty bad reputation, whether it was a movie license or a comic license or a music license or anything. That was one of the few, or that's one that people point out and say was like one of the key franchises ever in terms of licensed games. And there's, of course, that like there was that moment of like prestige movie games like Scarface and The Godfather and um, Reservoir Dogs, Fight Club, The Warriors. um, Mm -hmm. There was the Apocalypse Now game that they like tried to get off the ground two different times. Mm -hmm. Um, But we wanted to talk about some of the less literal, I think, ways that video games and cinema have been overlapping because it would just be very easy to do a laundry list of like the Assassin's Creed movie and like all of these different. Yeah. The Tom Clancy movie that's been advertised on the game since the first one ever came out and still hasn't been made. Tom Hardy was attached to that at one point. Yeah. Just like slotted in, you know, just like very generic video game movies. But yeah, but I'd say the first like, tie between video games and movies especially in terms of production when we think about the sonic the hedgehog movie has to be uh labor outsourcing Mm -hmm. and crunch and overwork practices being used to produce these things obviously i mean with sonic the main news story is that uh the moving picture company of vancouver which was the studio that after you pointed out that the original sonic trailer came out and people were mad about their childhood's dying or something because the sonic character looked just different than they wanted it to um Mm -hmm. the studio ended up outsourcing a lot of 
crunch work to redesign Sonic and reanimate him for the whole movie to have more of, I guess, that iconic cartoonish and polygonal look uh, that a lot of people are used to. And the studio ended up shutting down in December of last year, which was about two months before the movie actually came out and Mm -hmm. broke records. And is this thing that people are seeing as a great thing when actually a lot of the excitement for this movie came from that fan response and then the responsiveness of a studio to people yelling on the internet. Yeah. And, and no, but just like that, you know, people applauded, like you said, that uh, the fan input being taken seriously for once, but that was only enabled by this just like, totally exploited labor and it's a very similar situation a lot of the times in triple a video game development you know or i I mean all sectors of the video game industry just like over you know tremendous overwork late nights um endless hours yep i mean that was a pretty big thing um i mean people have talked about it for a long time but the first time it became a much bigger public conversation outside of a lot of like games writers and people that actively follow games, press and personalities um, was like Red Dead Redemption 2, maybe two years ago um, when there were stories coming out about like people working hundred hour weeks and everything. And that just being an, you know, part of the studio culture. Yeah. And now like one of the main two, the Hauser brothers that worked at Rockstar, Dan Hauser, ended up leaving recently. He was the one who was more of the creative head of it and would envision these like humongous games. And a lot of times that ambitiousness required or maybe was like contingent on those type of labor practices. So that's my main suspicion as to why he left Rockstar was just kind of the improbability of that type Mm -hmm. of game being created ethically. Um, but also, I mean, there are plenty of examples like Clint Hawking, the kind of the lead behind like Far Cry 2 and Splinter Cell Chaos Theory, who's now leading up Watch Dogs 3 when he's making Chaos Theory. He ended up having to take f- like three full time jobs on the project of like creative director, lead writer and I think like lead level designer. Mm-hmm. So working like 80 plus hours for s- several years. And he talks all the time about how he doesn't remember whole months of that process. Jesus just because that overwork yeah so i mean it's it's not the most like optimistic or like uplifting thing but i mean this is thing that video games have been built on for a little a pretty big part of its history but i mean even beyond that you have things like riot games makers of league of legends one of the biggest games in the world but the main thing i riot though was that whenever employees would report sexual misconduct or sexual assault or harassment mm-hmm. um I mean, it's broke culture in many forms, but one of the main ways that comes up is in like an HR process that requires like private, undocumented uh, meetings with accusers um, that then were really done nothing with and were never held accountable for. And then that not really leading up to much for the employees. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, those kind of like kind of horrible labor conditions are something that are pretty normal in the games industry. But that also extends to like, labor practices and film animation is that grows further and further digitized. And I mean, just grows more expensive by the day. Yeah, exactly. I mean, a a comparison that people were making um, a few months ago when Tom Hooper's cats came out, you know, it was very, a very rushed production. And I assume that, I mean, I don't really know the like 
specifics of the kind of working conditions of that movie, but I imagine it was probably at least, or probably especially on the effects side, like similar to that game industry environment of just like these late nights pulled to fulfill this impossible deadline. And of course, like that movie came out and the effects were not fully rendered and completed. So they updated it and uh, basically patched it. Video games have done that for a while. Um, part of that's just because video games usually require people to have like a working knowledge of the internet or they take place on the machine where you use the internet or the games themselves use the internet and they're connected in that way. Um, but I mean, games have done that for a long time in terms of player connectivity, also selling DLC, um, going yeah. back to you know games like Oblivion selling horse armor is the classic example people like to laugh at. But also, I mean, in the production of video games, there's a, like a several months long process of certification by major platform holders when you're not on a PC to make sure that the game doesn't glitch out and is unplayable. Mm -hmm. um, and basically just to go through and check to make sure it also integrates with other online features and stuff. So a lot of modern video games will use that months long period after um, they submit their final copy of the game to go get mastered and struck on discs and everything as they'll also use that to fix up bugs. And things like that or make additional content before the game actually comes out for players um but then of course people get mad about that things like no man's sky coming out and having like a seven gig patch um also mass effect 3 being a game that had dlc on the first day that it was released people got really mad about there being paid content that wasn't included on the disc um yeah as soon as you buy it and stuff like that even though that content was probably made or at least for the most like most of the work on that was probably done in the process after the game had been finalized and before it was in players hands yeah i feel like there is this uh we, we talked a lot on the last episode about the the concept of remastering and that's obviously something that a, a sort of terminology that i think like starts in film but then bleeds over into video games and you have the kind of idea of the film remaster and the re-release and the reissue it and yeah. and uh, games have obviously been doing that for a while now too but i think it's like now the opposite sort of thing happening of like a remaster versus a patch you know like now the language of like patches is coming from video games to film but the difference is like a remaster you know it's like once something has been out in the world and time has kind of worn it down and it's decayed like this is like freshening it, freshening it up <laughs> you know yeah. putting a new coat of lacquer on it whereas the patch is like okay your entire definition of what this thing is supposed to be is supposed to change like this is updating it you know you're supposed to basically forget the old thing and just take the new version uh that's been repaired or whatever all mm -hmm pick up where you left off in a second but one key example i think we need to throw in here i already mentioned mass effect 3 having like dlc on the first day um so already fundamentally changing a player's experience on that day and people just being mad yeah. about that uh but when i mean the game came out mass effect is a series where it's kind of built around like the like kind of that masculinist video game fantasy of having total agency and affect over every single thing 
in in the game world uh so it's this rpg where you're able to pick all these characteristics about yourself and um you know you kind of go on this journey and because of your choices that you make you know people live people die things change and everything um and it was i mean it was seen as a big thing when the first game came out and the second game was a really big hit too but the third game people got very upset at the ending because as your choices have carried over from one game to the next game to the third game um they thought they were going to have such vastly different endings to each of the points on the narrative tree to where Mm -hmm. everyone was going to get such a different ending but then the ending it ended up coming down to like a basically color-coded three-pronged choice but those are also how all the choices in the rest of the game uh series were were coded you literally had a different color option for the one that gives you like the good guy hero points and the one that gives you like the evil villain points um so you could see exactly what you were doing and i don't know the choices in those games always felt like very rigid to me i mean you'd get different cutscenes over which characters lived and died which characters you had sex with which characters hated you or something like that mm-hmm. um but a lot of the choices in those games felt pretty rigid to where i don't i don't know i when i played it i didn't really understand the whole outrage about the ending to that but they ended up like patching in new endings like cutscenes with different variations of you know just character interactions after the the world ended and all these or not the world ended but the choices ended and you had to like watch the final cutscene. um but people were like sending death threats and yelling and screaming at the developer on the internet so they fundamentally changed the thing in response to that mm-hmm. and the thing about i guess to get back to what you were saying between patches and remastering something is that patching is usually i mean it was always kind of like fixing bugs and things but now that um games that are networked and online only sometimes or especially for what i'm about to talk about um patching is a a way of like keeping players satisfied by just constantly changing it because now there's this concept of the live game Mm -hmm. um which is you know games that are always online games like Fortnite, apex legends overwatch the new call of duty um mmorpgs are a humongous one games like uh warframe too um but things where you get new updates and new content all the time i mean mmos like final fantasy 14 and world of warcraft have expansions and you know new content packs of a whole new chapter of the story but I mean, even games like Call of Duty and Overwatch, they'll change like values and numbers and kind of the raw calculations of how guns and characters and I mean, just how all the pieces of the game interact that you've been messing with for a long time. So part of that's to make it a a better game, but sometimes it's maybe to make it a more interesting game. They'll they'll change up who the dominant players are, who the dominant characters are when they introduce a new one um, to maybe make that character seem Mm -hmm. a lot more popular when it first comes out. so it's a lot of kind of massaging the way the game is played to then force and coerce players to play differently. You sent me this article a couple of days ago about a, a new version of the PlayStation DualShock controller, which would like sense heart rate and, yeah. and stuff. And it reminded me of the canceled Wii, a Nintendo Wii Vitality Sensor, Mm -hmm. um, which was like, you know, one of those little things that you put your finger in at the doctor to, like, take your temperature or whatever. And it was supposed to, like, uh, 
at least the I, I, the concept was that you know it would kind of like read your bio data and then mm-hmm. maybe the game would change in response to that so if like your heart rate was lower and it sort of sensed that you were bored it might like throw more enemies at you or something like that which you mentioned the concept of of live video games and in some way that kind of reminds me a lot of the experiments that um francis ford coppola has been doing over the past decade with what he calls live cinema um, which is this sort of like fusion of a live theatrical performance and cinema that he's like trying to do where it's like a totally i mean it is like a play essentially but it's filmed in a like totally seamless and edited way while it's like acted out live um and his the last feature film that he released the horror movie twixt um he did these like live performances of it where he basically like edited it live and like kind of like the we vitality sensor like based on the sort of like audience response you know observing the crowd almost like djing the movie and cutting up sequences or changing the rhythm based on like you know the movement of the crowd or like whether people seem scared or tensed or, or we're laughing or whatever live updates, live patching. But also, I mean, in relation, it's interesting to think about a live game versus like one that is about the, the, the vital signs of the player. Um, because the Wii vitality sensor was also pitched at something that, you know, if you were tense, it was a game that would help you fall asleep and would like respond to your heart rate in order to kind of help in that way. And it was more in in turn in line with the uh, the Wii kind of lifestyle mm-hmm. games, Wii Fit, Wii Music, Wii Sports. But the PlayStation controller, I feel a lot more like suspicious about how that information <laughs> would get would get used. Um, or maybe just the games that would use it. I don't know. It's hard for me to imagine something like that without remembering yeah. like the launch of the PlayStation 4 where the touch pad on the DualShock 4 was used in just about every game and in a way that maybe didn't really add much to it other than, oh, you're touching the controller. But it's not like a button. It's like a sensor or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you'd have like the speaker on the controller where sounds would come from and it would kind of freak you out. But also I heard that on the new Nintendo game Ring Fit Adventure for the Wii, it's like a workout game. A lot of people compare to Wii Fit, but it's like less it's less reflective back to the player showing them their exact performance and everything. And it has this like visual language mapped over it of a video game RPG Mm -hmm. where you're running around and defeating enemies using movements of this accessory that comes with the game and everything. But that game on one of the, Wii or the, uh, the joy cons on the switch has an infrared sensor on the bottom. And apparently after certain sessions, it will ask you to put your thumb on the infrared sensor and it will use that to detect your heart rate, which is interesting. Um, so the Wii vitality sensor somewhat lives on, but yeah, there are these, uh, to continue, uh, talking about like this idea of patching, um, mm-hmm. You know, there are, I feel like there are other ways that it's carried over into cinema that are maybe less literal than like, redoing the effects or or recutting the movie during Um, Mm re-release. There've been some other attempts at like retooling um, the 
image yeah. of a movie. Um, I mean, obviously there are remakes, like there have been four versions of a star is born. There have been several iterations of the Batman movies. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, ideas are tried and tried again plenty of times, but also, I mean, more, more recently, actually on the same day as seeing Sonic, I also saw birds of prey, which is one of these movies that, because of maybe lackluster returns on the opening weekend, they retool it to have like a new name. Yeah. Like what is it like Harley Quinn and the birds of prey or something like that? Yeah. It's just the first two words of the main character's name now, just that it's more identifiable because the original title had the, is very verbose and it said like birds of prey colon. And then this very kind of long subtitle with Harley Quinn at the very end of it. Mm hmm. So they just kind of moved that back up to the front for maybe more name recognition. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And a few years ago, there was uh, Edge of Tomorrow was renamed Live, Die, Repeat, which is sort of funny since that movie was like everybody praised it for being <clears throat> the best video game movie, you know, not a video game adaptation, but mm -hmm. like capturing, respawning and uh, you know coming back to life and like doing different levels and trying you know just like playing a game over and over again it captured that experience and then it was sort of patched after it maybe was not as successful as yeah. the studio had hoped but the actually the thing that i'm mainly upset about with that one is that the manga is originally called all you need is kill and i think that's a way better <laughs> title to go with that's if a you crazy a shot. title i know yeah but i mean all this basically kind of comes down to this idea i don't remember when i had it but i had this real snappy idea that i thought sounded like a kind of dumb but also kind of smart mm -hmm. but i mean films basically being projector software yeah um, and i think i thought of it when i watched a 35 millimeter print of something but i mean i feel like i should have i don't know that's so much more obvious with things like cats but i mean just about any other movie not even being shipped on a physical hard drive but now just being transferred online onto the projector system yeah and you know dcp's having to be like uploaded uh and you know checking the file to make sure it works mm -hmm. like a game literally mm -hmm. but i mean also like loading it up weeks in advance um you know buying it or loading it pre-release yeah. And then also, I mean, you're loading it onto a computer. That's job is to execute the, you know, execute the movie file and run that mm -hmm. and project it. But I mean, also in the same way that like, uh, like music is stereo software or I mean, just about any media is a type of software for another type of hardware. If you right. want to like galaxy brain out far enough. Yeah, I mean, I feel like just at a certain point, like levels of technological development with regard to like consuming media is just creating more and more levels of software, you know, like obviously uh, there's still a level of distance with like a live musical performance or something like in that case, the like the the air is the software or something or like the string. I don't know. Mm -hmm. The string of a guitar is like, well, I guess that would be hardware that then yeah the human program software on, yeah I guess then just the sound or or like the air is the yeah. software, but um, it is just like you know from like a record that you just wind up and drop a needle on to like a computer system that you have to like download the streaming client onto. 
and then you have to charge the computer and like search for the music um it's just these kind of like increased levels of like software within software it's i mean video games have been doing this kind of patching and updating and kind of finalizing or maybe never finalizing a definitive version of something i mean there's always uh some kind of conversation about you know the limits of you know what makes a video game mass effect 3 i remember like months ago i was Mm -hmm. actually in like a rideshare car with a buddy and we were just like i don't know we're talking about like Fortnite or something like that but we're just talking about like an an age gap kind of divide where it's not for us but you know whatever Fortnite is for like the target age for that was a different game for us and so then we just like left some kind of question hanging in the air about like oh i wonder what the the age group above us like shook their heads at us for playing whatever games we did or whatever thing. And then the rideshare driver mm-hmm. ends up like butting into the conversation to say, well, back in my day, you bought the game and you had the whole game. Wow. And so he went on a whole rant about mass effect three and like the ending not being whatever the right one is. And then it having like downloadable content that you could pay for on the first day that it was, on store shelves or available in digital marketplaces. But also, I mean, I, whenever people like start that whole debate about how video games now are just so different, cause you, you know, you can't just touch the game and hold a lot of it feels like kind of the physical media fetish of the holding the box when your mom's driving you home from the store and reading the manual and all this stuff. Blowing on the cartridge. Exactly. But I mean, if we want to talk about how video games now are subscriptions rather than owned media video games started off as coin operated machines that you paid for time to play. I mean, in the same way that computers were time shared machines Mm -hmm. that no one ever owned, Mm -hmm. but uh, they paid or signed up for access to it. Arcade games were the exact same way where they were made to be so difficult to play that you could never reach the end of it. Mm -hmm. So, I mean that, that conversation about the, the limitations of what makes a, a video game or what makes a movie or, you know, the lines between all these things kind of dissolve when you go back to, I don't know, however far you need to go back to to find a contradiction in the current paradigm. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, we were talking last, the last episode about this, like, you know, 1917 is a video game. Mm-hmm discourse and we went into that idea and i think there's a sort of like one of the just joint trends of both cinema and video games as forms and as mediums is like this desire for respectability and to be taken seriously and to be treated as art which i mean is kind of the story of the trajectory of pretty much any probably art form and like see it very clearly in television too today with prestige television but kind of going back to what we were talking about a little bit ago with like video games borrowing the cinematic language or cinematic archetypes so much of that is because you know cinema like gentrified itself and like became respectable and was taken seriously so video games try to like mimic that playbook um a little Mm -hmm. bit i think in in being critically taken seriously as art Mm -hmm. one of the techniques that like is one of the uh i don't know one of the ones that always kind of stands out is this 
one that is often like used for the impressiveness. I mean, this gets back to 1917 with the single shot and everything. But I mean that, I mean, it, that at the Academy Awards after we recorded the last episode, um, it won like best cinematography in part just because the difficulty of, you know, producing that kind mm -hmm. of like string of images that are very obviously made in one single session. And it's interesting because video games also attempt certain kind of different filmic images that are very much tied to the the conditions of producing a film. Um, but one of them is uh, God of War from Sony Santa Monica, the remake of a reboot of that franchise, uh, the PS4 one that came out in 2018, I think. Um, but the game, the whole thing is one kind of seamless optical flow of images that is is never broken up between mm -hmm. gameplay and cinematic. Even, I mean, unless you press the pause button and then there's a menu that pops up and that's not a seamless part of the, the flow of images. Um, but it's something that uh, they kind of painstakingly went through this process of having this kind of flowing camera going around framing everything and then would fall behind you into the third person perspective mm -hmm. i feel like there's this like with this like god of war employing the single take effect there's also with it's not just like video games trying to use cinematic language to prove their seriousness it's like a one-upmanship almost like, I feel like sometimes with the way that people talk about, like, food, video games or cinema now, like, some, I don't know, people saying, like, Death Stranding is cinema. I was remembering uh, when we were putting together just, like, notes for this, the um, this article that came out when Red Dead Redemption 2 came out, um, this, like, Polygon essay oh. that, about, like, why. I forgot about this until right now. Oh, my God. <laughs> Blast from the past, but it's this article saying, like, why Red Dead Redemption 2 is, like, the greatest Western ever made. And basically just saying, like, oh, this is this great, like, you know, very cinematic genre, but maybe Red Dead Redemption is, like, better than all than every John Ford movie because you can, like, actually, actually, air quotes, ride a horse and, like, be in it. I remember a key point from this article actually being that Red Dead Redemption is the best Western ever because it's about the death of the West than the West itself. Mm -hmm. And just like thinking that every Western isn't slowly about the loss of the the Wild West. I know that's the thing is like that is like the first thing I feel like they taught us in like American like film class in college was like, hey, the Western civil encroaching civilization, society, the death of the outlaw, law and order. But know. I mean, also like every Western is like from the get go about the death of the West, just because of the fact that, I mean, first of all, it's made pr in a pretty nostalgic lens, right? Any Western, just because, I mean, even if it's a very like bleak and pretty disgusting story, it always kind of harkens back to like a simpler time where mm -hmm. everyone had these same shared core values and community and all these things that are so apparently lost now. Um, but also, I mean, it's, it's made over 50 years since the the west 
yeah exactly any western is always made like with a several decade gap between it and the thing that it is making a movie about which apparently died you know i mean it's like you know this uh point that i hit on all the time about dinosaurs in movies and how like the image of a dinosaur we don't we don't ever really know for sure you know like dinosaurs are just these kind of scientific predictions and it's the same thing with like the western like the the uh, the image of the west that's conjured by the western is not the real uh american west and 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 it was something that was already over and done with when movies like imagined that language and created that genre but you know as you were talking about like the kind of typical moral uh worldview of the western genre that like you know i think we can assume that a lot of westerns have that sort of like loss of val loss of morals or something like that uh it honestly reminded me a little bit of the themes of sonic the hedgehog which is very much small town versus big city rural versus urban um Mm -hmm. outer space versus boots on the ground yeah society (laughs) i don't know also i mean if we're talking about the themes of the movie uh another one of the themes is kind of this family story and everything like that. And it ends up like coming to the fore of the movie as you watch it later on. Um, when a character is talking about Olive Garden and they're like, I love Olive <laughs> Garden because when you're there, you're family and someone else chimes in and they like say it in synchronization. And that's yeah. just a, a blatant statement of the theme, but it's advertisement for a brand as well. Yeah, it literally is a slogan both for Olive Garden and for the themes of the movie itself because it's all about friendship, friendship between a like child, furry child from outer space and an adult human cop in a small town. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought, always thought that like sonic was a teen you know like a sort of bart simpson like bratty middle finger fuck you like skater i mean totally like as a you know i mean the sega franchises yeah for a long time like going back to the genesis have always kind of been about that edge and that cool um, sonic the edge hog yeah sonic the edge (laughs) lord but it's always kind of been that type of well it's usually like like the nineties vision of a teenager that a 10 year old like looks up to and thinks is awesome. You know, generation X baby Mm -hmm. eating chili dogs, drinking (laughs) slushy generation go go fast. (laughs) But this is a, a movie that you got a lot out of. Uh, Yeah. Surprise! I was surprised you got you read some deeply some got it's a rich text for you I feel not I like don't really have like a crazy deep connection with like the Sonic franchise I really like neither do I I couldn't really give like I've used to play some of the games and you know the Sonic R yeah. soundtrack is great but oh yeah that's the best part of the Sonic universe is the music hands down mm-hmm. I'll also say that the Sonic except game, for I've... the Sonic 3 game which was the music was produced by Michael Jackson. <laughs> they distanced themselves from it, but you know, um, we got the, the Sonic Jackson game on that. I played the most 
was this like McDonald's like disposable Game Boy that came with like one Sonic game programmed into it where you were like running across the skyline. Mm. That's the Sonic game that I'm most familiar with. Nice. The movie I think like ends up going to some pretty interesting places in terms of like digital compositing uh and digital animation um which i mean is becoming just like a pet topic for Mm -hmm. the podcast i'd say um oh yeah the uh the cop who becomes his buddy his last name is wakowski and i was watching it and i was like there's no way that they just like put the name like wachowski on like a main character in the movie yeah it's not supposed to like mean something in terms of maybe some like goals or at least inspirations for the directions they take with a, a video game character movie, given that the matrix is something that, I mean, like there are plenty of video games that inspired the matrix and came out before the matrix even existed. But um, I mean, after like a generation I'd grown up with video games and the matrix came out kind of showing this vision of like digital resistance mm-hmm. And struck a chord with like many people who identify as like the the white dude, like gamer, kind of the capital G, like gamer subclass. Um, <laughs> like that was like a pretty huge thing for them. So I, I don't know. Maybe it's just because I was predisposed to already look for that to begin with. But yeah, um, I don't know. Some of the sequences in the movie do remind me a good bit of like some of the uses of digital filmmaking and i mean obviously the matrix but things later on like specifically like speed racer being a, a pretty obvious parallel to something like sonic the hedgehog maybe not in like the psychedelic nature of of their animations and everything and the way that they even tell a story but um and some of like the sensations they go for yeah yeah and i think it's kind of like being very much a like children's movie you know um like it really sort of like has that kind of comic relief and like yeah. funny, uh, like the, uh, like the little brother in speed racer, you know how you have this like intense emotional family narrative. And then it cuts to like him acting up with the chimpanzee to free bird. Yeah, exactly. Um, and Sonic the Hedgehog, like maybe is a little crasser than that, but it has that same kind of like, sentimentality mixed with the kid-friendly gags Mm -hmm. well i feel like that type of like story structure and just like the the overall like outlook of that type of story like fits in with the total like kind of pop song nature of like the sonic the hedgehog movie but also like detective pikachu and these just general like old and beloved character repackagings um that both of these kind of have in common i don't know that the Sonic, or I don't know that the uh, Speed Racer movie had like a a Diplo feature, <laughs> yeah. little bit part as a DJ, or it had a song made by like Pharrell Williams and Lil Uzi Vert, or Dua yeah. Lipa. Um, and the Sonic movie has like a TikTok rapper featuring on this Wiz Khalifa song that plays over the credits. Yeah, and the thing about that that's like I think it's very indicative of the kind of movie that Sonic the Hedgehog is. Versus something mm. like Detective Pikachu and also versus something like Speed Racer. Because I feel like Detective Pikachu is a little bit more like Speed Racer and that it's sort of set in a world that's similar to our reality but is 
pretty fantastical and fictionalized and science fictional. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what Wikipedia calls an urban fantasy film. Uh, and also, Detective Pikachu saw, shot on 35mm. So you got a nice little texture to that movie. You got some color. The but... neon hitting the 35mm in that movie. They put that oh, to a yeah. lot of work. Release the print, baby. Put it out. I want to see it. Rep screening. Show it. Uh, I would go. But that movie um, is verse. I feel like feels like a little bit more of a like complete movie experience, like as a narrative than Sonic the Hedgehog does, mm-hmm. which Sonic kind of feels like the Wiz Khalifa Lil Yachty TikTok rapper song at the end of the movie where it's just like a bunch of features, a bunch of different mm-hmm. rappers put well, yeah, together. It's a bunch of yeah. Scenes. It's a bunch of scenes yeah. and like, you know, Olive garden product placement, also Zillow, the real estate listing site product mm-hmm. placement, uh, and just like various brands, associations and pop culture references and wacky needle drops and it's just this kind of like grab bag of like cultural signifiers pretty much. Yeah. Well, I feel like anything that is like, I mean, this kind of like repackaging of a beloved character in like a new way always has these like kind of key moments they go for. I mean, part of this is also just like the limitation of the like animating mm-hmm. like a character in a kind of a new and expensive way as like one of the main features of the movie. Um, but I mean, these type of movies always have like, you know, the scene of like the human sitting next to the, the non-human thing in a car. Right. James Marsden. They always have that. Yep. I mean, I feel like the Pokemon movie also was able to maybe round itself out a little more just by like showing like just having pokemon just like populate the screen at all times yeah and so it's kind of you have these like multitude of different like things that are always catching your eye the world building uh where yep whereas sonic is very much more more limited to a single character until the post-credit scene yeah which it doesn't really bring in any of the uh outside cast other than robotnik eggman um and it is no big the cat it feels like very it has this flatness to it because it's like sonic lives in this like just little town in montana or something Mm -hmm. and then drives to san francisco but it is a very like non-place like it's only you know it's in san francisco because of the games obviously but it doesn't have this like Mm. defined sense of place at all it just has these like like the moral of the small town versus like the the evil of the big tech city you know the metropolis Mm. versus the community small community well i mean also it's it's a little bit about the difference between the i guess like the online community but not even online community, but like the startup apps and services that are now on phones and are just taken at face value and have these very like kind of clean, like graphic designs and, and brand identities they'll go with. And, you know, I mean, apps especially like do everything to kind of like give all these feedback loops to hook you back in or just make it as convenient an experience as possible and abstracting all of the, anything that goes behind, uh, to make, like all of that happen. Like, 
I guess an example to get out of maybe just like talking about it and maybe like actually like more directly like mention what I'm talking about. Like with Airbnb, you like never actually see the person whose house you're living mm-hmm. in. You just like go to some place and they have a key drop or something, or maybe you go and meet them and get a key. But then, I mean, that's it. You just have these kind of pleasant interactions arranged on an app. Or I mean, earlier I mentioned my Uber driver one time, like butting into me and my friend's conversation and talking about Mass Effect 3 and video games and DLC and, you know, and he just had all this like rage stored up that he (laughs) expressed at us. But these kind of like apps that are taken as these like standard things and just like parts of our general reality. But so much of it is about separating people and just having them interact as little as possible, but then exchanging everything and hand basically being a middleman for all these very mm-hmm. impersonal interactions that happen because of them. Um, so that posed against the local community, um, though, I mean, it's represented by like a local policeman who's, you know, the person in the small town who's trying to keep it that way kind of thing weirdly uh a movie that i was thinking about while watching sonic which i think connects back to the earlier conversation about like westerns and the sort of moral values of the western genre worldview um mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people compare uh clint eastwood to john ford in this sort of like patriotism maybe nationalism but that there's a sort of ambiguity about it and sometimes a kind of hesitation and while i was watching sonic Mm -hmm. i was thinking about richard jewell because like richard jewell sonic is a cop worshiping lovable outsider who just wants to be a hero just wants to be accepted and do some good for his community and he's just Mm -hmm. uh persecuted by the big bad deep state and they're just out to get him and he just wants to do good and it has the same like demonization of the federal government versus the valorization of like the small town cop as richard jewell now that i actually think about it there's a point in that movie in about the middle where richard richard's starting to be sniffed out by the fbi and everything and they are like starting to notice that maybe their whole house is bugged and there's this moment where they're all sitting around it's like Richard, his mom, some friends and family, and then Sam Rockwell, his libertarian lawyer, are all sitting around in this quiet moment, and they're watching an old World War II movie. I can't remember. I don't know what movie it was, but it was a battle scene with all these crazy explosions, yeah. and they started freaking out that these explosions in this movie um, might be picked up by the surveillance devices ever- that could or could not be everywhere in the house. Um, but also it's this moment of like total silence and fear and they just kind of let the silence hang over the whole situation. And then these bombs start piercing mm-hmm. through this fog of silence that's developed over the scene. And it's really interesting. But in Sonic the Hedgehog, they also use a movie. It's a pretty interesting thematic and narrative effect being Jan DeBont's speed. Um, when Sonic is spying on the uh, police officer who ends up becoming his best friend, he sees that they watch the movie mm-hmm. Speed and at one point sonic starts he talks about how much he loves keanu and then he starts like quoting dennis hopper's villain character (laughs) and i mean speed being this movie that is all about dennis hopper being this old police officer who sits behind screens all day and is completely abstracted Mm -hmm. from the not just the reality of what policing is like but the reality of what community is like 
to begin with. So, I mean, that might be a double abstraction if you view, yeah. you know, law enforcement as abstracting yourself from the reality of community. But I mean, that is also mirrored later on in the movie by Dr. Eggman, who's this like blackwater drone programmer who develops drones that do everything for him. And he has the same kind of cartoonish and totally animated performance in the same way that Dennis Hopper has in Speed. Mm -hmm. But one thing you mentioned, though, in the relation to Richard Jewell, I also thought of another yeah. movie This kind of mirrors being, being Rambo, First Blood. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Sonic kind of wanders into town, but also I'm thinking about it in kind of an adverse relationship to the local police officer uh where in that movie the police officer who basically escorts rambo out of town is actually like this is a small town and we want to keep it that way mm -hmm. and you don't belong here kind of enforcing the actual boundaries of the community you know uh, i think that the parallel that you're drawing to speed being referenced in the movie is really really interesting and like to take it a step further you know in uh speed dennis hopper is this you know, boomer who has had his brain nuked by cable news. Um, you know, this seemed like a guy who was probably obsessed with the OJ Simpson trial. Uh, mm -hmm. and he, his like entire experience, you know, he generates this like media spectacle and, it, you know, interacts with the whole world interfaces through television screens and phone lines and fax machines. But I mean, then he kind of pivots from, being like a boomer watching TV to wanting to start interacting with yeah. the images on there. And so it becomes a form of like real life video game death race or even the movie Gamer, yeah, yeah, yeah. where he's going around and he's creating the news by rigging this bus to blow up if it goes below 55 miles per hour. Yeah. And then he's watching it as it happens and calling the detective and talking to him. And he's, I mean, he creates a situation in which he's the protagonist of his own kind of video game yeah but he's also the spectator too at the same time and robotnik well i mean that's i've talked about that multiple yeah. times about like being the player of a video game being both protagonist and spectator outside yeah. of that so i think that totally lines up yeah and you know you mentioned like robotnik kind of similarly interfaces and mediates his reality through drones and you have that paralleled in speed with this community that's brought together by public transportation you know you have keanu as the hero and sandra bullock as his romantic interest and sort of like sidekick but you also have this whole diverse coalition of people economically racially gender etc who are brought together just by the situation of like having to take the bus together and you have this whole you know trope of like oh everybody in los angeles just drives nobody takes the bus but this is a group of people who have to take the bus for whatever reason and they defeat this like uh baby boomer villain and it's interesting because well Contrast that with Sonic, where it's all about friendship and the friendship between Sonic and James Marsden's cop character, as opposed to like an actual broader community, even though it talks about the small town. They're brought together inside a car on this road trip versus, you know, the bus of speed. And it's interesting because I feel like speed is very much working on the like Dennis Hopper, you know, being the easy rider the new Hollywood icon versus Keanu being kind of like one of, when you think of like a nineties generation X, like star, well, he's like total, like 
dejection, you know? Yeah, he, like, you know, is one of the people that you probably think of of, like, embodying the stereotype of, like, the slacker or whatever, like, whatever the 90s represents to people. And similarly, Jim Carrey in this movie is very much like Dennis Hopper, cast because of his, like, old star image, because of who he is in the 90s. Because the whole movie's, like, maybe not totally completely nostalgic about the 90s but he's obviously like looking back at it with the sonic game so jim carrey is like doing a very jim carrey performance and it couldn't be anybody else but jim carrey with the way that they like let him act and let him exist so similarly you have this tension between this 90s video game star who's come back now and is like youthful because he's digital Mm-hmm. Uh, forever, basically, versus the aging comedy star uh, mm-hmm. and former icon of the 90s. But also, I think that when you talk about Keanu, and I mean Gen X, like stars and maybe like a popular youth counterculture in the 90s, um, I mean, you might see Keanu as more of a rebellious person when you're back, when you're you know, in that time. But to me, it's so obviously revealed like over time that like Keanu is more representative of like, you know, a desire for like agency. And he like is a very much an avatar actor who's very projectable for an audience. Um, And that totally lines up with that same kind of, you know, what we're talking about in terms of like video games in the nineties being this very kind of edgy attitudinal uh, type of entertainment. Um, and so I think that maybe those two being in conjunction totally makes sense. And that meeting of the two in the matrix, I think brings the two mm-hmm. of those kind of like personal and then political desires into two or into a single kind of front. But also it's interesting to think about when we're talking about speed and Dennis Hopper's character being this person who, um, rigs a bus to blow. And we're also talking about the abstraction of law enforcement from your own community. Dennis Hopper being a former cop who chooses a bus for people who are systematically uh, disenfranchised Mm -hmm. and people that don't own cars in Los Angeles, people that take public transportation, but also people who are normally in jobs that keep the city running in a way that the entertainment industry does not. Or I said Los Angeles, I meant San Francisco, but now that being kind of more of a technologically inclined industry, um, it also lines up with kind of the trope of the NPC now, the Mm non-player character, someone who has not been radicalized by a certain type of kind of internet conspiracy and internet community. Um, Dennis Hopper also seems like somebody who now is totally all in on these conspiracies and views people who he's so abstracted from as NPCs and people who are at the end of the day, like in a video game, an NPC is someone that you really feel no empathy for and are mm-hmm. fine with kind of most of the time, like killing with a gun in a video game, but someone who the the future of them is not very important to you as the protagonist, you know? Yeah, I think what, what I like about Speed is that it makes like, it kind of breaks down the like NPC-ness of like action, movie, uh you know, extras where you just have people who are supposed to die or like make quips and they're totally disposable. And like, yes, every supporting character in speed is maybe not like given the spotlight or really like a, 
a major person, but they are like all sort of working together in a very like communal, uh, collective way, uh, which well, is, yeah, I mean, at a, at a point it is kind of like a cabin movie where you do, even if a character is not important, you do kind of like notice them and pick up on their behaviors yeah, over time. Yeah. I guess in talking about speed, one other thing I kind of wanted to talk about before getting back to some other parts of the, the movie, but the use of speed was also interesting to me because it starts off talking about San Francisco, um, uh, in the movie speed where it takes place and it has that as like an, a first like 10, 15 minutes introduction to the character. He sees them watching speed later on in the movie though. Sonic has to go to San Francisco, mm-hmm. um, in order to, to retrieve his, his like portal hopping rings that fell through a portal to San Francisco. Um, and they go there and the use of it, like you said, is such a non place. It's like very much very floaty, no real landmarks. I mean, obvious. I mean, I don't know how you go to San Francisco and don't have a shot of like Sonic running over the Golden Gate Bridge or something. Yeah, there's but... just the like needle, whatever that building is. Um, mm. You know, not even the like full house house. Mm. I mean, talking about the night nineties, you know, kind of have a little Danny Tanner. But I mean. The use of San Francisco, I think, is interesting because also they go there and there's more of the Zillow product placement a little bit when they're like shopping for apartments in San Francisco using Zillow and checking some of those out as part of like the story. Um, It's just interesting to have a movie that I think so blatantly nods to the Wachowskis. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you go to like San Francisco, which is now a place dominated by tech startups, most of them by people who are very inspired by the matrix and some of mm-hmm. that 90s techno utopianism and maybe are blinded by the techno utopianism or at least that blocks them from maybe seeing what's like what the rest of the the country might deal with and how sometimes that can't be solved with a phone app or yeah. it can't be solved with like a blockchain or something like that um so i think maybe the flatness of san francisco in this movie i feel like it, it just stood out to me. I'm not saying this is something they totally intended. Yeah, but, but I mean, there's also a way that that's sort of like how being set in this tech area, um, how that influences the movie. You know, you know, these kind of startup people you mentioned blinded by tech utopianism i mean the thing is is like you know all of those people have there's this sort of like new age ideal but all but at the same time it's like just totally in service of american empire and so many of those tech companies just end up you know taking on government contracts and doing this kind of secretive government work which goes along with like dr robotnik in this movie being this private military contractor who makes these sort of quips about like having done regime change like he has this loyal assistant and at one po- one point uh he's like eggman says something about like oh you know like i masterminded the coup in pakistan and his assistant's like what coup in pakistan and he and he's like exactly you don't know about it or something like yeah. that um there's also this joke uh where like sonic is fighting these drones and he's like man can you believe that amazon was going to deliver packages with these so just you know just love like casual jokes about drone warfare and war crimes Mm -hmm. and all those great things but it is interesting though because 
there's also a parallel between even if they don't take on like government work for, you know, surveilling on mm -hmm. people or designing ways to otherwise harm people, whether in conflict or, or other types of surveillance. Um, I, I think Eggman probably invented the ring surveillance camera. Oh, yeah, totally. Either that or he has some kind of like networked like drone camera yeah. system that he sells and he collects footage from. But oh, God. another way that this obviously happens is like the selling of personal data, whether that is health information if you do a 23andMe kit, whether that is just emails for just about any kind of, you know, like online account yeah. these days does exist on some kind of server somewhere or whatever system is in place that lets me pay with something with my credit card or pay for something with my credit card and then get a text on my phone of my receipt without me ever giving them a phone number. Mm -hmm. Whatever connections, all those things that happen are another way um, that I think the movie draws a parallel between, you know, a big tech city, a big kind of hub for global commerce um, versus the small community. Because while there is app surveillance and all these things. I think it also compares that to like small town community policing where people yeah. like police officers will know people's names and know about their family and their family as like police officers will be like a strong mainstay in the community or in small towns, like kind of everybody knows everything about you. Yeah. Um, the, the trope of that, I think there's maybe an interesting parallel even between that and then going out to places like, Zillow or just the general city of San Francisco where so many companies harvest that same information but are very disinvested from the entire mm -hmm. process of gathering it and analyzing it. The small town is the original panopticon. Mm -hmm. That's true. Yeah. But also, uh, to go back a little bit to, I think, some of the digital filmmaking, I talked so much about this movie in relation to the Wachowski sisters. Um, but I mean, there's some moments in it where I think the use of the, the like digital augmentation mm -hmm. of like these images and everything like that really stands out. Um, there's this bar fight that happens where Sonic like ends up like running so fast he stops time. And so then you follow this little animated character through this scene where nobody's moving at all because he's moving so fast and he rearranges all the people and all the objects to totally dismantle the conflict. Yeah. Um, which somewhat reminded me of like the bullet time in the matrix, not as much in like the flow yeah. of the image and stuff like that, or even, you know, how that moment is often hailed as like a separation of like cinematic time from the real time of moving the camera to capture the images. Um, but just like kind of the virtual camera following the little animated character around uh, without really being bound as much to a, human being yeah being totally kind of divorced from like any kind of real perception um and it, it reminded me a lot of the like quicksilver sequences from the recent x-men movies um but played to this more like comic like rube goldberg effect where part of the gag of slowing it down is like the anticipation of what it's going to look like when everything collides once it's mm -hmm. sped back up again so I guess I I misspoke earlier. I said that he like kind of dismantles the situation. He doesn't really dismantle it, but he like rearranges it in a way that it will it will like immediately diffuse itself yeah. and then everybody gets mad. Everybody afterward. will like trip like, and fall down. 
he'll like move people who are punching to like actually like punch a piece of paper or something like that or to like move people who are about to get punched and like move them over to a mm-hmm. bar and put like a drink in their hand um and all these different things and then kind of the the bomb fuse like burns up the whole way and then it all kind of goes off at one single moment yeah um and then also there's this other like little scene where like james marston's just like sitting down in a hotel room and sonic's like i want to i want to jump on the bed i want to do all this crazy stuff in this hotel room i've never been in one of these before and then james marston's like you have like 30 seconds to do whatever you want but yeah. that's it and so then you see like 10 sonics around the room like flipping through all the channels on the tv jumping on the bed like i don't know making a huge mess just kind of getting in all those basic delights of like destroying a hotel room that are not that i've done it but you know the ones that people yeah. often like the real like rock star shit he's just like jumping around the room doing like all the the bad hotel room stuff um you, i just as you said bad rock star shit i had a vision of a version of this movie where there's like some slow motion sequence of sonic set to rock star by post malone um oh, i thought you were gonna say party like a rock star that, that would also be great too um but uh it's funny to me this is like kind of a tangent but the big emotional like arc of the movie is sonic finds out from james marsden like the concept of a bucket list and he's like oh i'm trying to get back to my home planet i don't don't have much time on earth so i need to make a bucket list of all the things to do before i leave earth and so he does all of them and the last thing is like you know make a real friend and uh, so he befriends an adult cop mm-hmm. and crosses that off his list. But it's so weird. I like it's just very weird to think of the bucket list is just this whole like thing that people reference from that movie, from the movie The Bucket List. Did it not but exist before that? I don't feel like it did. I don't know. Maybe I just wasn't aware enough and I didn't know the the thing, the concept, but it did actually exist before the movie. But I feel like it didn't. But there's, you know, just like this, the bucket list is just a term that exists in the movie with no relation at all to the movie, the bucket list. And I just wonder, like, how many things are there like that, that have just totally seeped that are like from a movie or show or other piece of media that have just totally seeped into the culture to the point where the, like the original relationship to the source material that produced that reference doesn't even matter anymore. Like it's getting mm-hmm. to the point where maybe like the sunken place is something like that, that people just like say, and it has mm-hmm. this cultural meaning, even if you haven't seen get out. Sophie's choice is another one of those. Oh yeah. Yeah. Nobody's seen Sophie's choice these days. <laughs> people aren't choosing that one god am i right uh one other part that i wanted to shout out this is actually the main thing i think about in terms of this movie and Mm -hmm. like digital filmmaking there's a scene where he's he watches these kids play baseball all the time he lives in this little hole in the ground uh but then it's close to a baseball field so he'll watch kids play baseball and then at night he goes and some people like left equipment behind so he starts playing a game of baseball with himself which is interesting because it'll cut it won't even show him running back and forth between like the pitcher's mound behind home plate as a catcher. And then next to home plate as a batter, it won't show him running in between. It'll just kind of cut back and forth between all of these. And I started watching and I was thinking about how, I mean, obviously the scene's possible and he's having all these conversations with himself because he can run so fast. I mean, fast enough to like pause time. Um, But also, I mean, this movie is made using a computer 
or at least is like the majority of it and the finalization of it after the images are photographed it's all mm-hmm. edited um effects and everything are added on a computer and both of these things work at a rate that is not 24 frames a second whether that is his actual speed as a character or the speed of the machine and the capabilities of it on something that can run like now like 144 hertz is the new the new standard for like game frame rates and and things like that and computer created images but so i mean it's this scene that is kind of flexing the powers of you know digital technology with a character who like ticks at the same speed as that theoretical potential but then eventually going to a point where sonic's like playing baseball and then he gets a home run and he starts running around the bases so fast um that he ends up just having this epiphany of loneliness about mm-hmm. how he's doing this all himself and actually this is a very sad moment and it's not really that impressive that he's able to do all this especially <laughs> if there's no one there to appreciate it or no one there for him to do it with yeah um that he like sets off an emp with his like electrical energy in his body or something and it just like takes down everything in the whole the whole town and so that moment i i thought was like this very kind of potent emotional moment within this like very digital infrastructure yeah. Sonic is just a fucking emo king. He's just so sad that mm-hmm. he knocks the power out all across the world. You can't understand his pain. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sonic the emo king. The thing is that Shadow the Hedgehog is kind of the emo king. He is. He's the like, uh, I don't know if you, did you watch Arthur as a kid? Oh, yeah. You know, Bionic I had the Bonnie. PlayStation 1 game bionic yeah. bunny and then there was dark bunny which was obviously superman and batman but it was honestly a little bit more like sonic and shadow i felt like mm-hmm. um i always thought bionic bunny and dark bunny were fucking cool as shit um one thing about sonic before i don't know how many more sonic thoughts you have but i feel like we're winding down yeah uh, one thing that happened during my screening of sonic which by the way i drank a blue Icy for Sonic for pour one out for Sonic. Uh, Thank you for during, your service <laughs> during the movie. And I topped it off with a little red icy mm-hmm. on top, which was great. It was tasted amazing. Um, but there's like a recurring bit through the movie where James Marsden's wife, sister is constantly saying like, dump him, break up with them. Like leave your husband. You don't deserve him or he doesn't deserve you. Not the other way around. And there's yeah. one point where like, uh, the wife's sister spells out the word divorce and somebody in the theater was just like, that's right. And I don't know. It was just like somebody so funny, like hearing somebody just be like, yeah, Sonic, just like preaching the truth, like just fucking mm-hmm. dump your man. And I would just hope that that person was maybe like so inspired by that bit that they went home and dumped their unworthy uh, significant other. Jeez. Yeah. See, Sonic, very effective movie. Yeah, it really does. It brings communities together and breaks couples up. Jesus. The thing is that it came out on Valentine's Day. It did. I wonder what the date climate was like for Sonic. I don't know. Did you see it on Valentine's? Yeah, so actually I like ended up doing that and Suicide Squad just because I was free earlier in the day. So I went to both. I was off work. Um, before I had plans later. And so then I go to see Sonic at like the kind of the matinee thing. 
And because I figured Birds of Prey would also be like the way more populated one or yeah. the way less populated one. I figured Sonic would be more populated in the afternoon or kind of the evening time slot. So I went to Sonic and there were a good bit of people on there, a good bit of families going to see it more than I expected. But then I went to go see Birds of Prey at yeah. like like an early like date time. Um, and it was like a totally packed house for Valentine's Day. I didn't think about the fact that Birds of Prey was like the bigger Valentine's movie than Sonic. Yeah, the guys who can finally be like, oh, like, hey, like I can take my girlfriend to one of my superhero movies. Yeah. Um, it was funny, though, at the start of the Sonic movie, because I didn't really know Sega's role in making this thing. But they had yeah. like a production card kind of in the same style of like Marvel, where it shows like little comic book pages of all their heroes and stuff before it zooms out on the logo the sega one did that with a bunch of sega games like stuff like yeah. yakuza space channel 5 jet set radio like choo choo rocket space harrier all this like crazy old shit i lost my mind when that started because i didn't realize at first it was the sega bumper because it started on like the old sonic games and then like zoomed out and mm. so I thought at first that it was like, this is the movie starting. And I saw like Yakuza and I was like, what the fuck is going on? Like, it's yeah. just like everything begins with Sonic. Uh, but then <laughs> it was unfortunately just a the Sega title card. But the Paramount card, you know, I love how blockbuster movies always have their special studio bumper. And this one had the Sonic rings in lieu of the Paramount stars around the mountain. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, we don't have to go into this too much, but an old, if we're looking at like Sega's history, an old rival, obviously, being Nintendo. Yeah, so I watched the Super Mario Br Brothers movie last night, you know, which is much maligned, but has its defenders. Um, Another Dennis Hopper kind of kooky role. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, you know, honestly, it just kind of like passed right through me. I was hoping to be a defender, love a film audit. Um, but it just like, I don't know, it's like total recall for babies a little bit and has so such tangential and little the most ephemeral connection to like the games and it just like feels like the most fucked up. Like it just, it's just like, it's, it, it should be a much more simpler conceit than it is. And it's kind of insane. Yeah. And like, well, you I know, mean, the, I high, the high concept nature like is so strange for something that is still like beheld to this, like very basic structure. And you have to include these types of characters and these, yeah. this dinosaur is there. He's a plumber. I don't know. It just seemed I haven't seen it since I was like a very young kid. Yeah, it's just it's very complicated in a way that it didn't need to be. Um, mm. I, and I was hoping it's you know, I don't want to call it bad because it's got some very interesting uh, production design. Um, you know, it's directed by Rocky Morton and Annabelle Jenkel, who created Max Headroom. Um mm. And so it's like got a very interesting look to it, but it I just forgot about it pretty quickly and uh, which was kind of surprised me. I don't know. I didn't realize it was going to be that forgettable for me. Yeah. I'm uh, I, I have I want to check out the Street Fighter movie with Jean-Claude Van Damme, which seems like a similar sort of vibe. Yeah, uh, I'm interested in that one just because I want to just for Jean-Claude. Yeah. Basically, I don't really have much, much further seeds of interest in that yeah you know mortal Kombat. that's a classic paul ws anderson has yeah the juice. need for speed 
which, you know, speaking of Detective Pikachu shot on 35 millimeter, there's also a 35 millimeter print of Need for, Spree- Need for Speed, uh, which like screened in a double bill with Baby Driver at Quentin Tarantino's theater in LA. Jeez. The uh, the Mario movie, the only thing I remember from it is that it has this like total like like set up and spike type of like dialogue exchange, like how in like a lot of biopics and stuff like they ask like like the moment in the social network where they they're like, oh, we got to come up with relationship status or something like that. Yeah, they have this moment where they're like or in solo where he's like, my name's Han. Like, what's your yeah. last name? And he's like, I don't know. And they're like, well, you're by yourself, so it's solo. But there's this moment where they're being identified, and it's like, what are y'all's names? And they say Mario and Luigi, and the person's like, what are your last names? And they're like, uh, Mario. Yeah. <laughs> and then their names are Mario, Mario, and Luigi, Mario. <laughs> um, so we stupid. mentioned very quickly Need for Speed, uh, which stars Kid Cudi. And Kid Cudi just tweeted the other day, like, congratulations, Ben Schwartz. Like, I'm going to buy out a screening of Sonic and come see it to celebrate my friend Ben Schwartz and his voice role in Sonic. Yeah. Um, which I would have liked this movie a lot more if Kid Cudi was his sidekick and not yeah. a cop. I mean, that's a similar thing to what Travis Scott did did that with Black Panther, like buying out theaters full of tickets yeah. and stuff and having, like, community screenings. There have been some other examples. Like, I feel like somebody did that with like hustlers or something. And I think, um, damn, I think I also saw somebody do that with sorry to bother you and a couple other things like the stunt (laughs) screening, like we got to buy this movie first, make a statement, um, make it successful, Vote with your dollar. Exactly. Exactly. One quick one. I wanted to mention, we're talking about the Mario movie. I was thinking about the movie, the wizard, with Fred Savage in it. Yeah. Where do you know anything about that? I know about just about the power glove. That's about yeah. it. Yeah. Well, the whole movie is like a road trip to go to the Nintendo World Championships where this kid wants to compete. Yeah. And I mean, that used to be like a real thing. Like the cartridges they use in the NESs for the Nintendo World Championship, like things that were at local stores and then regionals and all these things. These cartridges are like really big collector's items and stuff. Um, but the movie's about a road trip to go and compete in this kind of Nintendo competition. And at the competition, they played Super Mario Brothers 3. And this was some of the longest, most extensive footage of the game people had seen up to that point. So, I mean, mm-hmm. it kind of got a lot of people that were really excited as kids going to see it just to watch that. And the same way people watched like Meet Joe Black in order to see the Phantom Menace trailer, you know? Yeah, yeah. I saw Big Hero 6 to see the Force Awakens trailer. 2015, different time. I 2014. Went to different go time. see... Uh, my friend had a gift card to the local mall theater chain. And they have an IMAX theater in there. So mm-hmm. we went to go see the new Star Wars movie in IMAX. Because it seemed like a real, a real spectacle kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, they showed us like a like a prologue IMAX exclusive extended trailer for the new uh, Christopher Nolan movie. That's always good. Yeah. Shot to in IMAX. Yep. Wow. It's true. I feel like that's probably, that's probably as much as we can get out of yeah. Sonic the Hedgehog. I Sonic. don't really, he ran out of juice. He did. He, uh, 
needs to recharge, get that lightning up again, run in circles and get sad again. Mm -hmm. But yeah, Nathan, did you have anything that you wanted to, to plug? Not really uh, that I can think of. I've got, you know, just go to my Twitter at Trillmore Girls. Just that's the hub. That's where you'll find all the things. I can't even remember what I have that's out there. I I have, have things that I've written that people should go read. But yeah, what about you? Anything going on? Not not a whole bunch to plug. I did recently remember that uh that 4K remaster of Bayonetta and Vanquish came out recently. And I'm pretty awful at self-promotion, but I remembered that a couple of years ago at Vice Games, but at the moment was called Waypoint. I wrote kind of an essay about Vanquish and oh, yeah. military shooters and I guess like action video game aesthetics that is kind of a miracle that it even got published. But Great essay, IMO. Uh, yeah, I mean, I like it a lot. It's just still kind of wild to me that that kind of more critical theory type of essay, given that it was when the game first got ported to PC, I had to work for a couple months to get it published. But I was pretty proud of that and that got posted there so i guess i'm self-promoting on the pod yeah go check that it's a really good essay i remember you we talked a lot about it as you were working on it and uh pitching it and um i remember it also sparked some contentious reddit oh yeah conversation but uh it's worth it like it's a real i think it's really insightful game (laughs) games theory time for some game theory I think it might have a cup like a bit of relation to some of the stuff I was talking and this episode of Sonic the Hedgehog and in general, like the just the general media theory we use in approaching the podcast. But yeah, but I guess that's it. Nathan, where can people find you on the twitting machine? I am, uh, as always, at Tremor Girls. What about you? ASAP Sunscreen. The podcast is uh, at Hotbox the Cinema. No numbers yeah. after it, no underscores or anything. The original. Just straight no chaser. Um, mm. And the email is the same, hotboxthecinema at gmail.com if you want to drop us a written note. Or if not, if you want your voice to be on our next episode, give us a ring at uh, the Hotbox Hotline, 615-592-1003. Um, Leave us a message, please. We're dying to hear from you. You know, from you stoners out there. Uh, leave us a rip and uh, a toke. Whether you're going fast or taking it slow. <laughs> That's pretty bad. Keep on toking.
Why is the rum always gone?